Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes and soothing decibels. I am your host, Maxwell Lewis Sanders, and this is episode 52. For those new listeners out there, Max Volume is a podcast that worships at the altar of pop culture, a place where the silly and inane are of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss heavy topics like which current director has the most Bill Belichick-like qualities, why the best action stars tend to be bald, and whether or not the Russians survived in the Pine Barrens episode of The Sopranos. No quote too minor, no side plot too small. This is a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks. So welcome all weary travelers. Your boredom ends here. So before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of daily Seinfeld level observations. So yesterday was my friend John Smith's birthday. Shout out, John. Uh, I enjoy your slow descent into old age. I remember being 29. Is that what he is? Yeah, 29. Uh, that's a good time. And it kind of reminded me of how I used to go to music festivals with him. And we wait till we found the most crowded group of people walking between sets. And I would randomly just start screaming, hey, it's my friend John Smith's birthday. Can I get a happy birthday song on one, two, three? And I could get anywhere from 500 to 1,000 people shouting happy birthday to a man whose birthday it was not. And it's just funny. And I've probably done it two, three dozen times. And it never gets old. For, I mean, for me. I mean, the recipient of the joke tends to be annoyed and despises the unwanted attention on not their birthday. But those are the sacrifices you make when you're my friend. I mean, you knew what you were getting when you signed up for my friendship. I'm covered in cartoon tattoos. I pour liquids into cups for a living. And I'm going to goof off in large public settings in the name of entertainment. So just suck it up, okay? Yeah, John. But he's not complaining, so who cares? And I'm glad I got it out of my system when I did. Because groupings of 500 to 1,000 people seems as likely as me going to Mars right now. So hopefully one day, maybe I'll do it. That'll be, that'll be like the solidifying that uh, this pandemic's over. It's when I get to do the birthday shout one more time. But for now, I get my small joys for, uh, from other ways. Like when my dogs run through some vegetation and they come back with kind of the sticky little green spores on their fur and I get to spend like 30 minutes meticulously picking them out of their fur and they just love the attention and I'm annoyed at first I pet them and I feel the spurs I'm like oh what'd you do and then I go oh good now I get to pick them out oh good 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 it's like popping zits times a billion it's really fun it's just enjoyable it's like getting the earwax out but you know it's not yours and it's not as gross it's just great and dogs love it they just sit there panting it's like you're massaging them I get why monkeys pick each other's you know heads and all I get that appeal now so, I mean, that, that definitely means I'm getting old because the mundane stuff becomes zen. You know I mean? Just picking spores out of my dog. You know what I mean? Just taking a nice long walk. Having, I had warm water yesterday at 7 o'clock. I was like, I'm going to try this, see how it does, because tea keeps me up at night. <laughs> I mean, that just sounds so old. But just the warm, the warm water was nice. I'm not going to lie. I have this nice porcelain uh, coffee cup, and I just I was vibing with it. And I used to be a person who used to be front row center, at 20,000 person arenas for shows. And nowadays that sounds terrible to me. My back would hurt. I'd have to pee every 30 minutes, which means hour long porta potty lines too. It's not temperature controlled. There's people smushing next to me. You can get a heat rash, just hard past. I mean, I'd rather have a podcast, a cup of lavender tea and a nice pair of Lululemon sweats and I'll purr like a kitten. That's what, that's what gets me going nowadays. So I guess, I mean, back in the day, 24, 25-year-old me would mock uh, that idea of comfort 10 years later. But time makes fools of us all, I suppose. So, I, I mean, that's what happens. But this fool is comfy in his Snuggie, 
scouring the internet for some wire season two factoids and you know i'm just content but back to john's birthday uh yeah it was it was yesterday i sent him some random bro gifts i got him led lightsaber chopsticks a ron swanson life advice pyramid poster and socks that make everyone around you understand your love of bacon you know basic silly stuff but i saw the package had been delivered you know amazon alerted me and he hadn't received it yet so being really impatient I kind of just, I texted him and called him to tell him to go outside and see what treasure I had gotten him. So the downfalls of lacking patience, but he dug the stuff. So no harm, no foul. It's not like when I ruined his surprise birthday party four years ago or so, <laughs> I accidentally screenshotted him a text with the information about his surprise party. I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> and not only did I let it slip, I, he had physical evidence of it. So he had to act surprised at his surprise birthday party. But he still loved it. He still had a fun time. It was just uh, highly embarrassing. And I still feel guilty about it to this day. But today's topic, no more John Smith. I mean, although I could talk about John for a while. It's my best friend. Love you, John. But today's topic is about two men who also lack patience when it comes to each other. So we're going to dissect what makes Bobby Axelrod and Chuck Rhodes and their rivalry so enthralling to watch. So background for those unfamiliar with those two names, these are characters that exist on the Showtime program Billions. It's, a, it's five seasons into a seven season story. It's directed by Brian Koppelman and David Levine. Uh, they wrote Rounders, Knock Round Guys, Ocean's 13, Runaway Jury. So they're expert at creating these perfect, wisecracking, highly skilled, morally vacuous characters who really pop on screen and billions is no exception. Just everyone's the smartest guy in the room. Everyone has cool pop culture references and great movie quotes. Everyone's got mic drop lines and is just, you know, the best of the best of what they do. You know, if they're in, if they're in an 80s movie, uh, Carl Weathers would come to the jungle and just be like, I need you, you're the best. So short synopsis, Chuck Rhodes is the DA of the Southern District of New York, which is in New York. I mean, like he gets to control New York City. He's basically the most important DA in the entire United States. So he wants big headline cases. You know, I mean, he wants to win everything. He's just, he's just an attack dog as a lawyer. And no cases are juicy, more juicier to, juicy to him than catching billionaire hedge fund king Bobby Axelrod, known mostly as Axe on the show, in a web of his infamous tactics of insider trading. So this is the most spy versus spy at the highest level because both are armed with kind of seemingly limitless intelligence. They're super stubborn. They got fortitude to press on when others won't. And from the outside, they couldn't be more different human beings. So let's break them down as characters before we get into why they clash so well. And it's so fun to watch them battle. So Bobby Axelrod, Axe, is played by Damian Lewis. He's in his mid-40s. He's this lean, sinewy, muscular guy with like just great jawbone and uh, this fiery red hair. And he hates corporate mentality and conformity. He wears Converse's jeans and a t-shirt to the office. Granted, it's like a $500 t-shirt, but still. He runs a hedge fund company called Axe Capital, you know, his, his, uh, his brainchild. His brain never turns off. He cuts all corners to make money, doesn't care. He's just an apex predator to the nth degree. He sees all the angles. He talks fast. He's smarter than the smartest guys in the room, too. He just he sees things in a different way than everyone else. He's just special. I mean, you can just tell. Because he's around in this field. Everyone's like, you know, Stanford. Everyone's MIT. Everyone's, you know, a computer nerd and knows the market really well. But he just knows things better. He just has a better sense for things. And the crazy thing is, 
about him is that he came up in Hoboken. So he's from a broken family, super poor. Uh, father left early on, and he's been mad about that ever since. He's still got, you know, dad left syndrome. He went to Hofstra. He doesn't forget his roots or his neighborhood. He loves Metallica. He drinks, he parties, and uses recreational drugs in, the, like, the 1% downtime he does have. But he never lets, him, lets that affect his work. Actually, in one episode, in season one, episode four, Metallica, he goes to see Metallica and he gets to hang out with them backstage and party with them. So, I mean, it just shows how much he, like, when he wants to party, he does it right. And he's kind of this ruthless, swashbuckling villain that you hate to love, but you love him nonetheless. It's just like, he's Scarface, he's Jordan Belfort, he's unapologetically a monster whose one core directive is to, is to conquer and move forward. So, I mean, it's just a fun guy to watch. It's just a great, great character. Just bravo, Koppelman and Levine. And Chuck Rhodes is played by Paul Giamatti. And he's couldn't be more different, like I said, on the outside. Generationally, blue blood, you know, gentleman of yore. He went to Yale Law School. He's, you know, sixth, seventh generation there. He's got a wealthy, overbearing father who's an old stock market pro. He's a control freak. He's a bit pudgy and it's insecure about his weight and he loves fine foods. And, you know, he wears like the suspenders and the pinstripe suit. He feels like he's a 1960s prosecutor. He kind of has this uh, dedication to what's classic. Like he worships historical geniuses like Winston Churchill and Teddy Roosevelt and quotes them endlessly. I think he has the entire set of uh, Winston Churchill's World War II books personally signed by him. And that's like his prized possession. I mean, that's that's how you get the vibe of who Chuck is. He, he does jujitsu too, but he only does it so he can use the tactics in the courtroom about, you know, applying pressure, about when you're down, what to do in a grapple position. It's very cool. And the weird subplot with him too is he's a sub in BDSM scenarios with his wife. You know, he likes to be beaten up, tortured, you know, kind of uh, put in leather outfits and slapped around a little bit because he has control on everything else in his life. And it's the one time he can simply let go of the reins so, and that's just a really, I've never seen that on a show before. And it, I've heard before, too, that a lot of CEOs and a lot of high-powered men are kind of into that because it's like they have to be so alpha and controlling in every aspect of their life. It's nice to be like, you know what? No one's watching. Just, you know, make me feel like a baby. You know, make me feel humiliated. You know, make me feel like, uh, like I'm the littlest person in the room. So that's cool stuff. And like I said, it sounds like these guys are polar opposites, but they couldn't be more similar, like in the core of who they are. Because if you think about it, they're both driven to success. They have this never-ending desire to crush their opponents. Just mash them into mashed potatoes. Just crumble them into dust. I mean, Axe doesn't care if he wins a little bit more than the other firm. He needs to stomp them into subatomic molecules to teach them a lesson for even attempting to be on his level. He never stops dreaming. He wants to be an NFL owner, I think, in season one. He wants to create his own bank in season five. In season one, he buys a seventy million dollar Hamptons home just so he can, just so he says he can't, so he say it, yeah, so he says he can. And Chuck doesn't want to take any cases that might uh, risk his perfect eighty-one and zero record in criminal cases. He's just a perfectionist, so he he has higher goals too. He wants to be a senator. He wants to be a governor. Perhaps one day he wants to be president. And they're these singularly focused hum superhumans who up until now have kind of bent the world to their idea of reality. So when this unstoppable force meets the unmovable object, they're just enamored with the idea that finally they got a worthy opponent they can take down. You know, this is Godzilla versus Mothra. This is King Kong 
versus Godzilla, I guess. I'm trying to think who, who, who could, King Kong and Sonic the Hedgehog. That would be a good fight, actually. I'd be curious because Sonic's so fast. But I mean, it's, it's finally, you know, it's a, uh, it's a general, it's a five-star general seeing another five-star general across the field. It's like, okay, I'm going to get a proper fight now. So each man, when they see something, a challenge in front of them, they put titanium blinders on about everything else in their life when they go to war with each other. And they both firebomb their marriages, destroy them completely. They both partake in criminal acts that they'd never attempt otherwise. But because they simply must crush the other, other person and so like profoundly, they're willing to take the risk. And it's just like they're willing to risk their entire life just to beat this other person. It's almost like they're in a different show or a different reality than everybody else. They're playing, they're Neo in the Matrix. They're playing eight-dimensional chess while we're all playing checkers. And the show is uniquely intelligent in how uh, to string out this rivalry because usually rivalries only last one or two seasons because otherwise it gets boring if they just keep hacking away at each other just viciously. Because they did, they did that in season one, and if they kept doing the same thing, by middle of season two, I'd be just bored. I'd be like, okay, they're just bashing each other in the head, you know, with all this stuff. What, what else is there? So what they do, or Cobbleman and Levine did, or they add outside threats, both personally and in business, that distract from their initial war. So both being tactical geniuses, sometimes they are forced to retreat and pivot their focus. And both are willing to partner with each other for sometimes an entire season, if it's beneficial to their end goals. Sometimes they have to, to stay out of jail or keep their business or keep their job or political hopes alive. I mean, they're, they're willing to be, you know, they're willing to compromise themselves to figure things out and, you know, get back to where they need to be. And, but the thing is when they do that stuff, they still have this smirking handshake kind of vibe, you know, when enemies uh, form a temporary truce, but they're already kind of mentally plotting their next scheme and you can see it and they're like, the furrows of their eyebrows. That's, kind of, that's what they're both doing. So it's almost Batman and Joker. Like they need each other to feel alive in a world where they've slain all the other dragons. This is the only you know, challenge left. This is Everest for both of them. And Koppelman and Levine also create a unique fulcrum between the two men. As Chuck's wife, uh, Wendy Rhodes, is Axe's closest friend and ally in his hedge fund. She's a licensed psychiatrist and the best performance coach for all these day traders, you know, she pumps them up and if they're broken down, she can help build them back up. And so her allegiances are pushed and pulled between the two men and she kind of brings them together and sometimes tears them apart. It's really fun to see her seesaw between each character because you never know where she's gonna land. So, I mean, that's always, uh, I mean, when you see her on screen, you're always curious what she's thinking. And small tangent on Wendy Rhodes, she is the perfect woman. I mean, she's top level intelligence, She's elegantly beautiful in that kind of Jennifer Conley wearing a ballroom gown, looking at, you know, looking at a Monet while sipping champagne kind of way, just that classy kind of, you know, beauty. She's fearless in her work life and always says what's on her mind. She can rattle off movie quotes and sports facts for the best of them. So if I had to be married to one fictional woman, it would undoubtedly be Wendy Rhodes. So if Wendy one day there is a weird science kind of vibe and you get created into real life, please call me. I'll, I'll give you my number. I'll put it on Facebook or something. And so you can understand why Axe and Chuck vie for her attention and advice during the show. And I mean, that's just a fun, I just love, I don't know how they thought of that, but I've never really seen that in a show before where it's not a love interest, but one of them's work related while he's, while one of the men is trying to take down the other's uh, business, but she's attached to the business while she's married to Chuck. Just this nice little triangle where, it doesn't feel typical. It feels new. And if you need a break from all this modern day gladiator corporate battling, Billions has you covered too. 
because the show's budget seems to be in the, you know, quote unquote billions. I mean, there's Bentleys, there's Maseratis, Ferraris, there's New York penthouses that are 10, 15, $20 million. There's gorgeous ski homes. There's just endless summer homes, vintage motorcycles, private jets, just gigantic yachts, invaluable art collections, Michelin star level chefs and restaurants in every freaking episode. I think Koppelman and Levine are from New York and they love showing off their favorite restaurants. So they'll hit like Peter Luger's and just every kind of five star, you know, new place. And they even do an episode where they eat an Orlan, which is a meal so decadent and illegal in how they prepare the bird. That's what the bird is. It's still called an Orlan. You have to wear a napkin over your head while you eat the bird whole. You eat it in one bite. And with the napkin on your head, it's because you're supposed to hide your shame from God. Like how freaking cool and terrible at the same time is that? Unbelievable. And I'm not sure which emotion wins that battle. I think right now it's 51 cool, 49 terrible. But it'll it'll change if I get guilted by someone. Like how could you do that? But if someone offered me an award line, I'd probably have to say yes. But I mean, the show also has endless cameos from real hedge fund billionaires, NBA stars, movie stars, actors, you know, everything. And there's just so much going on that there's something for everybody. But the core of the show truly is Axe and Chuck Rhodes' Western-style showdown. And five seasons in, I still have no idea how it'll end or who I'm rooting for. And that's the secret sauce of the show. They end every season with a face-to-face solo meeting of the two rivals, and it never disappoints. It's always fireworks. And sometimes they're on the same side. Sometimes they're, you know, about to tear each other apart. You never know. So what a fun intellectual boxing match. Just, you know, they're just wailing on each other with their brains. Love it. I don't think they've ever physically hit anybody. Well, no, I think Axe knocked out his neighbor once, but they never punched each other. You know, it's, it's all about intellect with each other. So I couldn't recommend it anymore. So check it out or do a rewatch if you've already seen it because it's truly poetry in motion. Later. <laughs>